Uh, let me pray quickly before we go on. Our Father, we ask that in your mercy you would uh, keep our hearts and ears open, uh, keep our eyes open as well uh, as we labour in this last part of the day to hear you speak to us uh, and as we study your word we ask for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start off with a question. Are you a spiritual person? Is that how you see yourself? (coughs) Used to be I think that uh, people would describe themselves as being religious or not. They were very religious or deeply religious or, you know, I'm not religious at all. But in the last uh, 30 years or so, uh, I think there's been a change in our popular culture such that people tend to speak more about being a spiritual person. And, you know, on the whole, it seems to be better to be a spiritual person than a religious person. Uh, In fact, it seems that you can be spiritual without even being religious at all. Certainly, uh, religious people do exist, but from the point of view of certainly the popular media, religious people are either divisive, deranged, or just downright dangerous. Uh, when people like Christopher Hitchens write a book that's a, uh, the title of which is God is Not Great and the basic premise is that religion ruins everything, who's going to put their hand up and say that they're religious? Well, I think it's important uh, for us to come to terms with this notion of spirituality because as people who live by the power of God's Holy Spirit through Jesus and for God, we need to understand spirituality and particularly spiritual growth because if we're going to grow people uh, and churches in their relationship to God through Jesus and by the power of his spirit, we need to have an understanding of what real spirituality actually is. Now I stress that word real because we live in a culture which is obsessed with reality TV, which is anything but real. So our normal cultural language for talking about things that are real is so distorted we actually need significant help in order to understand what it means to have to be to actually be spiritual and have a real spirituality which is by the power of God's holy spirit through Jesus and for God our father now Uh, From the point of view of the agenda that we've been looking at today, growing people and growing churches, (coughs) an important part of that will be spiritual growth. But what does that look like? What does it look like to grow as a Christian? What does it look like to be mature as a Christian in the day-to-day? That's what uh, I want to uh, spend our time with now and you'll see there on your outline on page 7 uh, I've summarised spiritual maturity uh, in, with that old phrase out with the old and in with the new. And that's the kind of perspective that I think Paul has here in uh, his letter to the Colossians. Now I've mentioned a couple of times uh, that they were, I guess you would describe Colossae as a deeply spiritual place. They had spiritual practices that governed just about every aspect of daily life uh, and covered them in pretty much any kind of contingency. 
But we've also seen that um, Paul applied the gospel message to their situation in such a way as to show them that all that past spirituality that's around them, that's false. A true spirituality is when God comes to us in the Lord Jesus and reconciles himself to us and unites him, unites us to him and therefore to God, having cancelled any debt that is against us and freed us to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus. Now Colossians can be confident that God has set them free uh, from the religion that is around them because of it, what he has done in Jesus and they don't need to be bound by the various pagan practices uh, because Christ has done everything that is needed to make them blameless before God. So now we turn to the part in any New Testament letter where a writer begins to outline the implications for the new life that Christians have. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, they're about character and culture. Uh, and I separated those two by saying Character is mostly about the kind of person you are. Culture is the way we will relate to each other. Okay, That's the basic sort of uh, division that we'll be working along. So, <coughs> it's here that we'll begin to get a sense of what Christian spirituality really looks like uh, in the day-to-day. And The first thing that Paul wants the Colossians to come to terms with is the is they need to get the right perspective uh, on their spirituality. And that means understanding that the perfected nature of their life is hidden with Christ. It's the first point there on your outline. Their life is hidden with Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 there. (coughs) Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now the life of each member of the Colossian church has been caught up in the life and work of the Lord Jesus himself, the one for whom... Uh, and through whom all things are made and all things held together. So there is, of course, a very real sense in which Jesus is not here, though. He's ascended to the right hand of God, just as Peter announced at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, we read this. Peter says, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you see now and hear. Now the significance of this for the Colossians, and it does seem a bit strange to start talking about uh, our life is hidden with Christ when we're trying to understand what real spirituality looks like. The significance of this for the Colossian Christians lay in the fact that the perfection which the Lord Jesus is, he lives perfectly towards God and perfectly for us, that perfection and our participation with it is actually in the future. Christians don't live perfect lives now. I'm sure you are aware of that. Uh, You must know a Christian who doesn't live perfectly. 
You might have met one at church one day. And what Paul is saying is that uh, the perfection that we see in Jesus is held out for us in promise in the future. And at the time when the Lord Jesus returns and the world is made anew, then our true perfection that is in him will be manifest in ourselves. In the meantime, we live in the light of that coming promise. Our lives, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, the perfection of our lives is hidden in the Lord Jesus. Now it's the resurrected Lord Jesus, however he dwells in eternity with God, the promise that comes to us through the Gospel is that Jesus is living there for us. In him we live with God, perfect in a perfect way. But the revelation and the consummation of this perfection is yet to come when Jesus returns. So as Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So the perfected sense of our holiness and blamelessness that Christ Jesus has won for us is kept until we're of age. It's in trust, if you like. You know, sometimes uh, if uh, a large sum of money is left to children, they won't be able to gain control of it or use of it until a certain age, till they're 18 or 21, that, that those resources are held in trust for them. Or the perfection of our life in relationship to God is held in trust in the Lord Jesus who stands before God now for us. Now this should bring us to a very important question though. If the Colossians don't need to engage in the rituals and religions of their day and the perfection of their nature is off in the future, what do they do now? They don't have to participate in the local religions but the true perfection of their relationship with God is held into the future. So what about now? What about the day to day? What kind of structure will their lives have? What kind of structure or rhythm or dynamics will their lives have now? As they await this coming future glory and as they try and distinguish themselves from the pagan practices around them, what will be the the nature of their life with God, with each other? As I noted earlier before, when your life is completely uh, caught up in uh, religious practices and rituals, at least you know what to do and where to stand. If you do the wrong thing, you go down to the temple, you offer a sacrifice, the priest says, yeah, that's okay, and then everything's sweet. You know where you are. But if you don't have that, what do you do then? How do you live with others? If you want health, wealth and wisdom or love, sex and marriage in the Colossian culture you just perform some kind of appropriate ritual. A little sacrifice here, a little magic there, a bit of secret knowledge and that will help you get by. But Paul tells the Colossians Jesus has done away with all that. But now what are they supposed to do? Well look at chapter 2 verse 6. Paul says, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
Okay, but what does that look like? Well, one of the things that Paul wants to impress upon the Colossians is, and I might just have to make a bit of room here for myself, spirituality Well, hang on, spirituality, spelling. Oh no, it's getting late in the day, isn't it? Relational beyond ritual. Okay, Paul wants the uh, Colossians to understand that spirituality is more about relationships than rituals. Spirituality is relational not ritual. And the first aspect of uh, dealing with this or structuring their lives is to concentrate or transform their character. Now it's been said that your character is what you have left when you've lost everything you can possibly lose. In the past, building one's character was an important part of personal development. But since the 1960s, if not before, decades of the loud and constant outcry for personal freedom have meant that notions of personal character have kind of given away to be really the sort of thing that intellectuals discuss about novels. That's the only kind of character uh, that people tend to be uh, necessarily interested in. Ironically though, if we change the language from building character to self-improvement, you then have an entry into one of the world's most lucrative industries. The irony is, it seems that God should be pleased with us even though we don't seem to like ourselves very much. But nonetheless, the Colossians had a whole system of shaping character that included these various practices that I've spoken about. But is our culture so very different? So many around us are caught up in the relentless pursuit of an agency or an everlasting mind, reaching towards an ideal self who, when it's not dancing with the stars with a Botox grin, is relaxing in a transformed uh, inner city garden terrace, feasting on the fruits of their master chef skills. (laughs) That's the kind of self-improvement we're after, isn't it? Maturing a Christian character, though, means inner transformation. Out with the old, in with the new. Paul tells the Colossians that the appropriate way to live in anticipation of the revelation of the Lord Jesus is to put to death the old way of life. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, Look, therefore... Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. A new life in relationship to God through Jesus Christ means ridding ourselves of these inner desires that destroy relationships. You see, this is the world's biggest loser from the inside. The winner here is the one who loses all these relationship-destroying desires. You don't have good relationships when you have anger or malice or slander, do you? You can't have good relationships when you lie to each other. 
That's the kind of transformation that Paul is talking about. Now you might say here that Paul is just being a bit of a prudish Jew. After all, Jews always had a fairly strict moral code and they tended to look down on the behaviour of Gentiles. But, you know, when someone has a heart attack, the doctors might perform an arterial bypass and may even uh, insert a pacemaker, but it's the lifestyle changes that need to come afterwards that keep someone alive. There's no doubt that pagan society was rife with sexual immorality and it would have been extremely difficult for the Colossian Christians to keep themselves pure. But nonetheless, ridding their lives of sexual immorality and holding themselves apart from that kind of thing, all kinds of purity, were the sorts of things that were necessary to transform their character. And, you know, it's something that our culture continually struggles with today. More than one independent report has questioned the wisdom of the government's broadband internet scheme given the proportional proliferation of pornography that always comes along with it. As the bandwidth gets broader, it seems so too does perversity. And so the onus is on us to be mindful of sexual impurity. We need to rid those things from our characters, those desires which, will, which can and will overcome us one way or another. Now Paul says, after sexual impurity or impropriety of any kind, the Colossians need to get rid of greed. And it's significant here, I think, to see that he attaches greed to idolatry. Greed is that desire to uh, own or have that which does not belong to you. And idolatry is really a means of procuring those sorts of things from spiritual powers. The whole point of performing magic for the Colossians and engaging in the kind of idolatry that they were doing was really just to get by in their daily life. Make this person fall in love with me. Make this person go away and leave me alone. I want my business to be as wealthy as that person's. Greed in itself is, a form, is always a form of idolatry. We give to some object, some person, some thing, the kind of honour and respect that belongs to God alone. It, be, it, it invariably becomes some kind of form of idolatry particularly for us who live in a culture where greed is supposed to be good. It is actually what makes our market economy go, the desire to have something more than what you already have. That's how things gain value, because I have have something and you want it, so I'll charge you for it. And so you've got to do whatever you can to get the resources to get what I've got in order for you to have it. Discontent has been transferred into aspiration such that shopping has become a leisure activity. Now again, uh, Paul says, uh, moving through these sorts of things, anger, malice and slander, these are all things which destroy relationships and they're the kind of things that the Colossians need to get rid of in themselves. Anger, malice and slander all speak of a culture that is steeped in violence and aggression with little regard for the value of human life. But this is not just a first century problem, it's a problem for our culture as well. While ever we hold human life in low regard, it's because we cannot contain anger, malice or slander of any kind. And it's sad to say 
It, I think you were an unusual person if you'd never come across malice and slander in a church. And yet what an evil poison that is. Years ago I was working for a church and uh, we had this intricate network of uh, ministries set up all re- revolving around a kitchen. On Sunday night we would serve a cafe for the youth groups while the later church was on but the same facilities were used by the women's breakfast committee. Uh, Fridges and freezers and that sort of thing and lo and behold one day during the week somebody came in and accidentally turned off the freezer which meant that all the food that was there for the kids cafe went off but they didn't find it until Sunday night. It's summertime. So they go in on Sunday night, throw open the freezer to start making supper for the kids and there it all is, you know. You know what Sydney summer weather is like. Now, what do you think happened? (laughs) Anyone want to hazard a guess? Who turned the freezer off? Oh, not just who turned the freezer off. Every kind of complaint and misgiving and dissatisfaction and envy and malice and slander that had been lurking around in the church for years blew up like a forest fire. And before you know it, these people who were singing Thank you Lord on Sunday morning were at each other's throats on Sunday night. Paul says get rid of anger, malice and slander. They poison people and they poison churches. Now all these elements of the old way of living need to be disposed of. They are not at all appropriate for those whose lives are encapsulated in Christ Jesus and his loving relationship with God and the world. Growing mature people or growing in maturity cannot happen or at least will not happen while the characteristics of the old way of sinful living have not been confronted. What we need is a new self-image that comes through Jesus. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 10. Put to death this old self. Verse 10, put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now this is not merely a spiritual niceness and it's far from trying to attain the giant within Instead, maturing in Christ means becoming more like Jesus himself. Jesus who had compassion on those who were sick and poor. Jesus who showed kindness towards outcasts and social misfits. He was humble before his disciples, even though he was their master. He was gentle with his family who took him for granted. Most of all though, the Lord Jesus was forgiving even as he was abused by the chief priests and elders of the people who hung him on a cross, Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. 
As the Colossians set their minds on Christ, they should expect to see these virtues manifest in their daily life. One of the chief virtues of your Christian community must be forgiveness. You must be known for forgiveness if you're going to call yourself God's people. And that is in fact what God is working amongst us. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we who with all unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The spirituality that perfects uh, in us is that which makes us more and more like the Lord Jesus. For the Colossians this is not just a matter of ascetic practices or secret knowledge or any other kind of mumbo jumbo but rather is continuing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, his life and ministry. And the same goes for us. We must put to death the old self and put on the new. Now that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. In fact I liken it to the kind of trouble that you have when you buy a new pair of shoes. Now, this, this, I think this is particularly a man problem but Fellas, I don't know whether you know this, you, you finally relent and you go out and buy a new pair of shoes. Uh, they look good, they're good for your feet, they don't smell, but they're very uncomfortable and you'd much rather put on your old stinky shoes again, wouldn't you? Yeah, because you know, I can see you're all laughing and the wives are going, yeah, 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 that's all right. But friends, that's what happens to us as Christians as well. Even though living a new life is much better for us, even though a new life is much better looking, the old way of life is for more familiar and feels a little bit more comfortable. And so we'll want to slip back into our old way of life because we know it. We're familiar with it. The new way of life is a bit uncomfortable. It forces us to do things that we don't want to do. Paul says, put to death that old life and put on the new clothes that are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Alright then, well the last aspect uh, of what the, will necessarily come from this renewed inner person is a renewed community in which Christ dwells richly. The last aspect of Paul's directions on how to grow people and grow churches is the significance uh, of the Christian gospel for their community. And again, because spirituality is relational, beyond ritual, relationships mean other people, how we live together. That's how we show our spirituality in the kind of community that we have. Now the Christians are by no means the only one who have a desire for a sense of community. It's hard to find anyone who doesn't want to belong somewhere or at least belong with others. And if you don't do it, it's difficult. Uh, if people, When you meet people who don't want to be involved with others, we usually think that there's something wrong with them, don't we? In fact, the most uh, severe form of punishment that our culture will meet out on an individual is what? Solitary confinement, isolation. <coughs> so human beings are by nature social creatures and that's why one of the most severe forms of punishment is solitary confinement. But there's got to be something about a Christian community which is more than just people wanting to get together. Often when sporting clubs or school groups or sometimes even churches, what people mistake for community is actually just a matter of doing the same thing at the same time. It's as, if, 
It's as if everybody were like the Dodgem cars at the fair. You notice how Dodgem cars are all connected to the roof, all getting their power, but all they do is crash into each other all the time. That's what most people seem to mistake for community, just doing something at the same time in the same place. And if you don't like it, then you go and find somebody else. Suppose then that we put on a new life that has been transformed into the likeness of Jesus. How should we express our newfound selves? Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first sign of a growing community is a shared desire to be Christ-like for the sake of others. True unity or true community only comes through a sharing, an active working together to reflect God's image amongst each other. We put on the new clothes not just for ourselves but for others so that others will see Christ in us. As Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 11, Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The normal kind of separations, the normal kind of distinctions that we might naturally make between others, Paul says, no, they don't count anymore. We don't make those kind of distinctions. We don't separate people from those sort of things. In fact... And I say this carefully, it may not matter whether you're local anymore. You may not have to live somewhere for 50 years before you're welcomed. A Christian community doesn't have those kinds of barriers so that Christ can be in all and with all. Growing a Christian community will produce much more than multiculturalism where everybody is left alone to do their own thing. Instead, the common culture, the thing that transcends all other cultures, is the character of Christ in each person. It's the only sign of belonging that God is looking for. Now we must be constantly mindful of the pressure to homogenise our churches along the lines of a lifestyle or an ethnicity or whether you were born here or not. And Paul is doing exactly the same thing to the Colossians. It's not a matter of barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is in all, is all and is in all. Now the second sign of a growing community is its ability to allow a sense of complementarity amongst the different people who manifest Christ to each other. Just because we're all Christ-like doesn't mean it's a homogenous thing. We don't all actually have to be the same. There are different ways that people will be able to be Christ-like towards each other. And I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is focusing on once he starts to look at the lists of relationships. Now we've forgotten a couple here. I uh, forgot to tell Chris that I actually wanted all of chapter 3 included uh, so that we could look at marriages and families as well as uh, workers. But I just want to finish off by looking at the differences uh, that... Christ's likeness makes in particular relationships. Now it's worth noting that the church in Colossia, as I said, is probably a household and that might well be why Paul has divided up the community into husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters because that's basically who would make up 
this kind of a household uh, in Colossae to whom Paul is writing. So that is primarily, if you like, the kind of distinction he's making. But of course, it's not the only kind of relational groupings that you'll have in a church. There'll be people who are not married or people who used to be married and are no longer. There will be people who don't have parents uh, or those who don't have children, those sorts of things. But the basic principle that Paul is working on here is that Christ-likeness will mean different things to different relational groupings. So let's have a look at uh, what he's listed here before us. The first one (coughs) is marriage. Uh, It's often said that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But what will Christ-likeness do to that? Paul says in chapter 3 verse 18 Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, though the thought of women ever submitting to men in a modern culture is almost like a swear word, uh, it's worth noting here that Paul is calling for something quite distinct from notions of paternity or patriarchy. The key phrase here is, as is fitting in the Lord. Now as Paul describes in a very similar passage in Ephesians 5, what he's calling upon wives to submit themselves to is their husband's desire to grow their godliness because that's what a husband's job is. So Paul is calling on the wives, submit to your husband's desire to foster godliness. Don't stand apart from it. And similarly, when Paul writes to husbands to say, love your wives, as he uh, describes in great length in Ephesians 5, loving your wife means sacrificing your life for the sake of her godliness, because that's how Christ loved the church. So the main dynamic that Paul is talking about here is the fostering of godliness. It doesn't really matter whether the wife is better at keeping the purse strings than the husband doesn't even matter if a wife is a better driver than a husband. That's not what she's been asked to submit to. And by the same token, loving your wives and being gentle with them is a matter of treating them like Christ treats his people. That is, working yourself to death for the sake of their godliness. So... Paul says, as chosen people, uh, holy and dearly beloved to God, clothe yourselves compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And this is where you see it work out between husbands and wives. And as the, uh, the next kind of major relational grouping amongst the household will be families. And Paul sees here that families need much more than the world's strictest parents uh, or super nannies and children can't be left just to express themselves because all they'll ever do is express perfect selfishness. Instead, what Paul says in chapter 3 verse 20, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Children must obey their parents in the home because it is the first Sunday school. Children, the only place they can learn godliness and Christ-like behaviour is from their parents and so that's what they need to obey. They need to obey the example of their parents' godliness and therefore, of course, fathers and uh, mothers need to guard their own godliness so that all this talk about loving Jesus doesn't fall on deaf ears. They don't show a hollow example. You know, it's not, there's no such thing as do as I say, not as I do, in terms of godliness. 
Parents have to mirror Christ's likeness to their children uh, in order to teach them what it means to live in true spirituality. So children will be grown in every sense uh, in a Christian family. And finally then there's the what I call the heavenly accord. The last aspect of the household code is perhaps the trickiest insofar as in our modern ears the whole notion of slavery really only comes to mind in the context of 18th and 19th century Europeans stealing Africans uh, and taking them to America or Europe or the West Indies. Now, (coughs) it's not that... uh, stealing people in military victories didn't happen in the first century but what we do need to keep in mind is that slavery in the kind of context in which we see in a Colossian household was much more a matter of domestic working that is people hired themselves out to others if they couldn't pay off debts and they became slaves they worked for a particular household in order to pay off a debt but they were really just workers of course slaves were uh, at times mistreated and uh, particularly uh, what is of uh, interest here for us in Colossians that small letter I told you about Philemon has anyone ever read that letter Philemon? what's it about? it's about a runaway slave and do you know who that slave is? Onesimus the guy who appears in chapter 4 at the end here. So you can see that there's a particular sensitivity that Paul needs to address here when he writes to the Colossian household because he's writing about a situation that's very real to them. So what does he say in chapter 3 verse 22? Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. So what Paul is basically saying to Christian slaves, even in this kind of an environment, uh, which you know seems different from our labour laws, although I know plenty of people who feel like they're a slave at work, But wherever you are, wherever you're working, work with integrity as if you're working for the Lord himself. Don't work just to curry favour with the boss. Work to glorify the Lord Jesus. Show that Christ-likeness that is part of the inner transformation in your working activities. And I think to a certain extent the same applies for Christians in an ordinary workplace today. Turn up on time, go home when the work is done because you're serving the Lord Jesus. Don't steal from your employer, don't try and suck up to your employer. Serve the Lord Jesus in that work, whatever that work is. You don't have to be a highly paid professional in order to be Christ-like. And it's Christ-likeness far more than anything which uh, the Lord is pleased with. And so conversely, Paul says to the employers, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul needs to remind the, the, the masters, the, probably the, the head of the household, that while they may have others under their care, they too have a master in heaven who looks down on everyone. So... Uh, Christian uh, employers uh, and in these terms in Colossae need to be just 
and need to act fairly. Slaves, workers do deserve uh, a fair day's wage. They ought to be treated justly and fairly because even an employer has a master who is the Lord Jesus. So these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of opportunities, if you like, in particular relational circumstances that people can manifest Christ-likeness to each other. It doesn't have to be the same thing at the same time because not all relationships are always the same. But what is important in all those situations is the old way of living. Anger, malice, slander, greediness, lust, desires, all those sort of things, they're put away with and instead we have, if you like, the accord of the Lord Jesus himself people treating each other with love and patience and kindness and generosity and, most of all, with forgiveness. So a mature Christian person, a person who grows in maturity, is one who grows in their relationship to God through Christ Jesus, which shows itself in their character and the the nature of their culture. Genuine growth for Christian people comes when they put on the new self that reflects Christ's image to the world. And genuine growth amongst Christian communities starts with basic relationships that seek to honour the Lord Jesus himself in generosity and forgiveness. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have put before us in this letter to the Colossian Church. We thank you for the many different things we have seen today, what we've learned about the Lord Jesus, what he has done for us, and how that should impact upon our lives. And Lord, I do ask that as we go out from here, back to the many and varied communities in which we come, that we would be enabled by your Spirit to be a bit more like Jesus for his glory's sake. Please work in our hearts to put off our old ways and to long for the good that you have kept in heaven for us to return in the Lord Jesus himself. And I pray that you would bless our communities, our churches. We pray, Lord, that they would be places of generosity and forgiveness so that in all things our communities might truly echo the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.